Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. If you're new, welcome. Check out some old episodes. They're there in your favorite podcast app, whatever that might be. However, only the last or well, the newest 50 appear in iTunes. Every episode, though, is available on my website, osherginsberg.com. You can also uh, leave me a voicemail there and subscribe to the mailing list. This week, my guest is Australian radio and TV legend, Amanda Keller. You can hear her anywhere in the world that you've got access to podcasts. She's got the, a podcast she does with her co-host Jonesy, the Jonesy and Amanda Jamcast. I'll tell you more about Amanda in a moment. It's been a big week. I came back from Amsterdam. The finale of The Bachelor was on. Uh, thank you very much to everybody that watched it. We had uh, superb ratings and Twitter was super fun. However, by now you all know how the show Turned out the aftermath of the show, and I am I'm quite sad about it, to be honest. I get to go to work every day and I get to help people fall in love. And having been through a few breakups, both in the public eye and out of the public eye, I really, I really feel for everyone involved. But I, I'm like that anytime I hear about someone breaking up. I, I kind of tear up 
when someone tells me that they're getting a divorce because, look, I know how painful it is. It totally sucks. Not that these two got divorced, they broke off an engagement, but look, it it hurts just the same and I, I really hope that um, everyone can find happiness. <laughs> I know it's a bit late, uh, but Eid Mubarak to my Muslim friends, Shana Tava to the members of the tribe and uh, happy Dashera to my Hindu friends. It's kind of funny that this time of year we have these festivals all at a similar time. They also kind of have a similar theme, asking for forgiveness from those who we, who we may have wronged or purging the soul of ego, selfishness, and greed, starting a new year with a clean slate. They're all kind of fairly sw- similar because there is, there's a lot of fear swirling about religion, religion in the world at the moment. But it is important to remember that at the core of many of these faiths are similar principles to live a life that's the kindest to ourselves and to one another. So often we only see when these principles are twisted by an extreme minority section of these religions that we fail to see that the vast majority of the followers of all religions actually choose peace and kindness over violence. Just, I thought that was something to kind of point out. Um, So may your next year, no matter who or what or how you follow or feel or or believe or whatever it is, may your next life be full, may your next year, on your next life, if you would, be full of light and joy, just full of light and joy. And together, I hope that, you know, we can make our communal existence on this pale blue dot that we share a, a more gracious and peaceful one. Let me tell you about my guest this week. I am so thrilled to have her on board. Amanda Keller is one of the most recognized people in Australian media. She's currently one half of the number one breakfast show in Sydney on the radio with her co-host, Brendan Jones. She's had a TV career that spanned the last 25 years. She continues to be a voice of fun and light and kindness in you know what can be an increasingly somewhat cynical and let's face it blokey world of broadcasting we talk about that we talk about what it takes to have the career she's had what she learned from working with andrew denton and how she got the incredible work ethic that has pushed her through her career from the punishing schedule that she had as a researcher from a kids tv show then then we get deep we talk about ivf and she it's very gracious. I've got to really thank Amanda for being so honest and so open with me about her IVF experience. And her story here really shines a light on what it is to go through IVF if you've never been through it before. If you've ever, even if you've never worked in radio or if, if you've never worked in media, Amanda's got some wisdom here that about work ethic and about gratitude that I wish that I'd heard back when I was starting. I really do. But you, you're lucky because you get to hear it today. Um, so I should get this on. If you do like the show, please subscribe. Pick up your pocket phone, hit subscribe, and um, you know a, a new episode will magically appear in your phone every Monday morning Australian time uh, by RSS, whatever that is. So enjoy an afternoon cup of tea with the delightfully funny, charming, and let's face it, beautiful Amanda Keller. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good, Amanda. Nice Welcome. to see you. Thank you. Thanks for being in my house. Sorry. Pleasure. I'm a bit warmer than I thought. 
Why not? Thanks for being my house as you strip off. Oh, Isn't just, that the job of the bachelor? It's just a flannel. Well, I'm not, I'm not very bacheloresque when it comes to my 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 chesticles. <laughs> well, I'm thrilled that you can be here. Well, I'm, thank you. I was stoked to run into you this morning. I didn't think I was going to see know. you this what morning. What are the chances? That was pretty exciting. Mm, were at, you in seeing the other people at the, the yeah other time the, call? The, <laughs> so uh, Amanda works. Uh, Amanda is the number one breakfast radio show in thank Sydney. You. Thank you. Thank you. Number one, mm. a few surveys in a row now. Mm. and Two. Yeah. Oh, when's this going out? Because we've got them coming up very shortly and yeah. I don't want to sort of be eating my words. 20s, well, look, two in a row. Happy okay. to take two right. in a row. And um, yeah, you work at a, uh, a fairly decently sized media conglomerate. There's about five, four radio stations. Three, but as in all Australian radio, it's at least a duopoly. There's always a duopoly uh, in each major city. And so... A new show, Kyle and Jackie O has started, has been bought by our network and they're in our building. So On the same floor. Same floor. It's so weird, isn't it? You're making competing radio shows 20 metres from each other. It's like, hi, Ralph, hi, Stan. And, you know, when we bundy on and bundy off, we make coffee together in the kitchen and do our lipstick together in the bathroom. Kyle and I do anyway. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they're very disarmingly nice people. Whether you want to like them or not, they're so nice. Yeah. It was nice to that, yeah. It was nice they renovated that old studio though, because it was like a shoebox. The other yeah, one. Yeah, no, they have they have zhushed it up, and there's pictures in the foyer. They've tried to make it look like a proper radio station now. That's pretty snazzy. Yeah. Well, snazzy. I get excited. I did the triple crown this morning. I did the triple crown. What I did. That mean? Uh, I I did Southern Cross for stereo, DMG, and ARN yeah. this morning. And they're all they're all duopolies. It's yeah. the way of the of the world, isn't it? I see. Yeah. So I did. I started at. Uh, ARN with Kyle and Jake. Mm. Then I zhuzhed over to Nova to do Fitzy and Whip. Mm-hmm. And then I scooted over to Southern Cross Stereo. I thought I could smell different time calls on you. You've been seeing other people. <laughs> <laughs> and I had this three different intros making fun of my name. And uh, everyone always asks me the same question. Am I booking the girls that Blake says no to? <gasps> the answer is no. Which of those two things is more tiresome to discuss for you? The people thinking that I'm buffing girls off the show mm. because it's, you know, my career mm. or a couple of hours of sex. But it's also, and which way would you go? A couple of hours, what a show off. But it's also the assumption killer. that you can't meet a woman normally. Or the assumption that I can't control myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I have <laughs> to, to put you on the bromide for the duration of the shoot. <laughs> 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 to carry a big cold spoon with you. It's real. Look, it's real. It's really easy. It's like once you, you know. And I learned this from, I remember Greg Burness, who was the, my executive producer on Idol, when mm-hmm. he was talking to me about starting Idol. He goes, I really want, you, really want you to do this show. The only thing I'd ask is hands off the merchandise. Don't go anywhere near the contestants. I'm like, totally fine. Mm. And it's never been an issue. Mm. Never, ever, ever. It's like that's the line. You and Marsha, though, sure. No. She was always with she someone. She wasn't a contestant. She was always with someone. <laughs> <laughs> but they're the sort of shows where you don't want the scandal to override the show. Some yeah. shows you do, but not those shows. Well, it's the same with this show. Like, you know, my, um, yes, I'm single, but I'm never, you know, I'm going to, if I do be with anyone, I'll keep it super low key because the stories about this show has always got to be batches, you know, with someone. Mm. It can't be host of batches off mm. trying to find someone. That's right. And you can't. Uh, split the team, as it were. All those girls have to aspire for him. And that's, you know, they say this about a woman on her wedding day. It's the only time in her life where the other women in the room are all there to make her look and feel great. Hmm. In normal life, it doesn't happen as often as it should, but on a wedding day, 
all the bridesmaids, everyone, know they're coming second to somebody else and they're happy with that. So that's probably what The Bachelor has to be for every guy as well. We're all here to make all eyes on him. That's, that's all we do. There's no other show that makes – I've worked on a lot of TV. There's no other show that just every single shot is just let's make everyone look as good as possible. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's great. They, don't, they, don't, they do not mess around. Having said that, maybe some of the contestants, some of the women should be, I don't know, hunchback dowagers <laughs> with one leg. <laughs> We're making prime time no. television here, Amanda <laughs> no, Keller. Come on. Let's change the world, Osha. Let's do it. <laughs> I don't know if we can do that. I choose you, <laughs> Melda. Like I said, we're making this aspiration. We're making aspirational television. Mm. This is the we're telling a, a love story. Mm. It, you know, people just, can fall in love with older ladies with dowager humps and one leg. You know, <laughs> I'm sure they can. That would be a fun show to watch, wouldn't it? If it's me and Helen Mirren, maybe. Oh yeah, well maybe it's like the old-fashioned perfect match. You know, pull back the door and see who you get. Helen Mirren. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, yes. I saw Caligula. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes. Not all Caligula. It's not all Caligula. She's 60 something now. I know. Still would. I know, that's true. Still would. Still get wood. Have you had a look at her? I know. She's amazing. But also, part of what you like about her, I'm sure, and I'm hoping, is that she's she's a thinking person's sex symbol. Yeah. She's smart and she's interesting. Yeah. So it's not just pin up. Yeah. Because you can always get a, you know, 70 year old pin up. Well, that's the thing. Is I remember uh, Julie Bennett, a producer I worked with at Channel V once, who was talking to another uh, that I was working with, whom I won't mention his name. Um, but oh, he was name. he was reading out uh, he was reading out text messages from his eighteen uh, year old girlfriend. This guy was thirty, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Julie was just like rolling her eyes, and he goes, "Oh, listen to this one. When I look at the stars, it really makes me feel happy that you're looking at the same stars that I am. Isn't that lovely?" And Julie just went, "Oh, for fuck's sake! One of these days, you're going to want to sleep with someone that you can have a fucking conversation with." Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's so true. It's so true. Eventually, yeah. eventually, you, you want to have a chat. Eventually, you do, and you're going to need to. Yeah, because everything else gets a bit routine after yeah, a while. That's quite right. It sure, mm. it sure does. Um, you've come over here from your home. You live not far away. Not far away. You live in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. That's right. By the by, the beaches where it's well, lovely. Well, near the beach, not not necessarily viewable of the beach. I'm not much of a beachy person. I grew up in. Um, uh, I went to Carlingford High. Where's that? That's sort of northwest near Epping. Okay, so the suburbs of. Of Sydney upper middle class. Uh, yes, it was kind of, but not too upper. Mm-hmm. It's probably become more upper now. Yeah. But it was a nice area. My parents, we, I was born in Brisbane. We'd had two years in Perth with Dad's work. We'd come to Sydney. They chose an area because of the nice school. Carlingford High was a very good school, mm-hmm. good state school, and we lived nearby. But I always had this fear of beach culture. I interviewed mm. Kathy Lett the other day and it brings back all the puberty blues thing. And watching the recent incarnation of puberty blues, I found it very stressful to watch because it was so, it was everything about my teen years that frightened me, that these other girls were doing these incredible things. And I was scared of being seen in a swimming costume, not much has changed, scared of that freedom with boys and being comfortable with yourself and f- that fear of how the boys treated the girls. Yeah, so wow. it's interesting. I live at the beach. I don't swim at the beach. I, I love walking along the beach with the dog. And the kids will occasionally say, Mum, you know we live at the beach. Can we go to the beach? And they're probably getting old enough now where they can start going on their own. But when they were little and I just stand there bending over in the shallows, 
I just think I'm just not interested. It's funny you mentioned that. It was just until you said that. I was afraid of the beach as well. I was, you know, I was quite fat when I was a kid and I was terrified of these, the, you know, on the other side of things, the way the, the guys who were surfing always had that aggression, that, you know, alpha person gets the wave kind of pushing aggression, this is my beach, get off my beach kind of stuff as a kid that I was exposed to when we briefly flitted down to the Gold Coast from Brisbane. I was always afraid of it. Mm. I was horrible. Where in Brisbane were you? uh, We, I was born in Brisbane. I think I was born in Mount Gravatt, I Mm -hmm. think. Um, So we we left there when I was six. All right. But my brother still lives there. My dad's on the Sunshine Coast now. Lovely. But, uh, yes, it's funny. It's in the same way I'm scared of horses and I don't trust girls who like horses. It was always just that's the other sort of girls. I was never those sorts, that sort of girl and I was um, jealous and mistrustful of girls who were just, that was their life, I think. So beach girls, the freedom and the confidence to be in a bikini and talk yes. to older boys. Oh, any boys, just to yeah. talk to boys and to be comfortable in a bikini and just the, the it seemed the freedom of that life was mm. was. Um, so not mine, mm-hmm. and I was threatened. I was threatened by the ease of it. And how embarrassing is this? When I was in my final year of high school, so I was sixteen, seventeen, we decided I'd done my high school certificate. Group of girls and I thought, let's go to the beach for the day. We took trains, buses, planes, blah blah blah, to get to Manly. We went swimming where the ferries came in. It never occurred to me that you walked through a Corso and there was a beach. That's how naive I was about – I'd grown, grown up in Sydney by then. That's how naive I was about the beach culture. We swam in the oil slick where the ferries came in oh. and went home again. And I thought I'd had this great day at the beach. Right. Mm. So that's how little I knew of beach culture. But on, on the other side, the other girls were the – I guess, you know, you don't get to uh, go and play with horses if your dad's a forklift driver, you know. That's yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. other side is the mum drives a Range Rover – and, you know, the kind of girls of privilege yes, on the other side. Yes, and they were also the girls who did physical culture. You know, the girls oh, who were... Physical were, culture. Yeah, you off to fizzy. Yeah, and they, that's right. they'd come to school. Pre-aerobics. <laughs> oh, that's right. But they'd come to school. I think of it when I watch Dance Moms. They'd come to school with hair in rollers and things because they had a fizzy presentation that mm. night. And I think my cynical brain clicked on very early that I thought that stuff was funny. Maybe that's it. But I thought they were aliens as well. So where did you fit in? I was the dag, I think. I was the I was good at school. I was a bit narky, a bit sarcastic. I remember one of my teachers saying that he'd never met anyone in his life as sarcastic as I was. And I saw the badge of honor, I was pleased to hear that. So I think I was the quiet, slightly acerbic one. Yeah. Mm. And at what point, because you went to, uh, just for folks listening outside of Australia, mm-hmm. you went to a university which is now like they call it the Mitchell Mafia. The, it's yeah, the, I know. It's, the best people in the media. <laughs> And then there was me. But a lot of people who are influential now in Australian media were there. They all went to the same school. It's like it is basically the NIDA to, for, for what NIDA is to acting in Australia. Mm. Mitchell, Charles State University at Mitchell uh, and Bathurst is that to the Australian uh, journalistic and, and, and media industry. I certainly didn't feel it at the time, the, nights that I, the night that I joined the Claret Club. <laughs> it took me years to be able to drink red wine. And I, but I came also from a household where my parents didn't drink a lot. Now uh, mum passed away 10 years ago, but dad likes a glass of wine. But it, that we weren't a boozy family. Mm. And so when I left home and went to live on campus in Bathurst, which is a, a country town probably four hours 
out of Sydney. It's uh, cold. It's freezing cold, but it's a it's a university town because that you I lived on campus and I loved it. Um, but that's the first time I'd encountered drinking. Um, Boys, I, I learnt that I didn't have to be a SWAT. I worked out how much I had to do to get through. I discovered what my own opinions were about things. That's where life began for uh-huh. me, I think. But there's a particular night with Claret Club where I remember it was just red vinegar we were pretty much drinking. And it was, it, it, there were just spews, fountains of claret everywhere. So people just spewed everywhere. We talk about my life beginning now. But it was about 15 years after that, I think. When or might have been ten years when I met my husband, and he taught me that not red all red wine tastes like vinegar. It was a revelation to me, <laughs> and you could actually drink it without regurgitating. That was a huge breakthrough. Oh, mate, the kind of drinking we used to do was like you didn't. It wasn't counted unless there was a vomit going. Yeah, on. well, pretty much, pretty much, and that was a, such an eye opener to me. What? Because I was thinking when I was getting ready for this interview, when I was thinking about that university, I had no idea that university existed. I, I lived a very mm. sheltered, very closed life. I didn't know a lot of things outside of Brisbane. I just didn't know. But that course pretty much started just a couple of years before I went there. So right. it didn't have any reputation then. Mm-hmm. And so all these people that you just referred to that, or the, the, the people, groundbreaking people in Australian media, when I went through it was just an arts degree with a bit of an add-on. And that's why I did it. I wanted to do an arts degree and read books and be like the girl in the flowing white cheesecloth in a flake commercial, mm-hmm. in a chocolate commercial. Um, but instead I was in Bathurst because I thought, well, I better put a professional adjunct on it, which meant communication somehow. Uh-huh. But I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what kind of job I would get. So it was just an arts degree at the time for me. Right. Did someone say that's where you should go or that's just where you accepted? Uh, a friend of mine went there. A friend of mine um, from Carlo High went and I think at the time, I don't know why, it was either that or just do an arts degree in Sydney. And I don't know why, but I think it was the communications, the writing. I wanted to mm. do writing, I thought. Right. And just at the last minute I thought, actually, that's what I should do. And it was terrifying. I remember driving with mum. She drove me up to drop me off at the beginning and we tuned into the local radio and they had the pig market reports. And I thought, what have I done? How am I going to meet someone from Brideshead Revisited if I'm actually <laughs> going to this country town? Yeah. But it was it was a um, it was life changing for me. That moment of where was the switch from kid to adult? Was it was it yeah. Claret Club? Or? It might have been Claret Club. It might have been Claret Club. And when I first arrived, I was living on campus in a place called Allen House, which was all women. And the next term, I went to a shared one, and I was so shocked that boys and girls there weren't boys' toilets and girls' toilets, and the showers had shower curtains. I just. Even now I'd be horrified by that. Mm. But to see this modern dormitory like that. With co-ed showers. Co-ed showers, co-ed toilets, um, that, that, was, uh, uh, that was eye-opening too. Yeah. I always remember that great South Park line, there's a time and a place for everything and it's called college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's the time between ponies and men. Yeah. <laughs> 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 a girl comes of age. Well, uh, yes, I miss. I missed all that. I uh, I didn't get to go to university until much later, and then I dropped out. Well, I think I was also the world's oldest virgin. I was terrified of life to a certain extent, and it, as I said, it took me a few years to figure out who am I and what is it that I think is important. And that all happened probably around then and after I left then. But right. I felt like I started to think for myself in those years. Right. It says on the internet that you started radio there, that you had your first oh, early shift at the campus hilarious. station. I probably made that up on an early CV. Yeah. I didn't, I was, I was such a fearful person. We had to do, we all had to do a bit of radio and I hooked onto this girl who was really good at it for our assignments. So 
early shifts is probably a loose term. It's probably more turning up and signing the form and saying that you looked around and did a few bits and pieces. I never sat there with a microphone and did this kind of thing. On the on-campus station? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. So that, but you were aware of it. Oh, yeah, I was aware of it. And it seemed to me that the grooviest guys hung around there yeah. and they looked like they were, you know, 25 years old. They're probably 18. Uh-huh. But that seemed to be where all the, the scary, intense guys hung out. Did any bands come through while you were young? Oh, band nights were legendary. I still remember watching Andrew Denton. For those of you who are overseas, he's one of the, uh, he's still one of the Australia's great comedic brains. I met him there. Yeah. And uh, But I remember watching him dance like a tumbleweed across the, uh, the the auditorium. We are. I wasn't a music head, but I loved band nights, and that's where I discovered alcohol. I think. What was he like at university? You know, it's funny. Andrew and I. One of the first things he ever did was call me a fishwife, and we've always had this love of offending each other ever ever since, and and making and trying very hard to offend and make each other laugh. And that's been the history of our friendship and our professional working careers together as well. Um, but it's funny because at the time. He, uh, you know, he'd, there's a couple of girls, he would say, oh, you know, I'm really interested in you. And they say, I just like you as a friend. And then, you know, cut to 10 years later and he's the enfant terrible of Australian television and everyone would boast that they knew Andrew Denton at uni. And every time I go back there, I go, don't go very often, but there's still talk of and, and these apocryphal stories of what Andrew got up to when he was at uni. Is it true he painted his name on the roof of the blah, blah, blah? And is this true and is that true? He's still... The, the icon from there, but that yeah. you'd never have got a sense of that at the time. Right. Mm. But it, it is, I am, you know, constantly fascinated. I had uh, Dom Knight uh, on my show the other day. He sat right there and uh, he was, you know, talking to me about the first day in high school when he met Chazla Chardello, the very first day of high school. And, um, and that just went bang? Yeah, that was it. And then like within nine or or within like a year or something, they were involved in the school newspaper. They were editing the school newspaper and Craig Rucastle, who was a year older than them, said, I want to come and I want to write with wow. you guys. And that was it. Yeah. You know, and that their entire careers were blossomed out of this connection they made when they were just yeah. still teenagers. And I'm fascinated by that. You know, this is the part they don't really explain to you at school that, that – the people that you meet along the way, they're the people you're going to be working with forever. Yeah, and also don't piss anybody off because in 20 years' time they're Prime Minister or they're whatever. So, you know, that's, that's the fascinating part of the journey, isn't it? it that's, is. that's what's great about those years. I was going through some old photos recently all covered in cockroach poo and remember the days we'd get two-for-one prints? Yeah. Before? So I've got two of everything of these dreadful photographs. But what I love about it is that the... That, in those days for me, when I first left uni and got a job at Simon Townsend's Wonderworld, a children's show as a researcher, and that was another moment where I thought, my life begins now. And I, uh, the night I found out I got the job, I went to New South Wales Uni to the Roundhouse and I was watching Mental as Anything and I just thought, how good is my life? I'd moved out of home and, and I'd started this job in the media as a researcher and some of the photos I found just reflected that. But you know what I love about my whole life? And this is what I say to my kids is that I hope you're as lucky as I am that at every phase of your life you think, how great is this? I would hate to think the best is behind me. And when I hear Richard Clapton's These Are the Best Years of Our Lives, I always want to cry because every time I hear that, I'm so grateful that I still feel that. I'm 52 and I still feel, wow, these are the best years. It would be a very sad, it would be a hard song to hear if you thought all that, if, if I thought back to the first time I'd heard that song and that was the only time it was relevant in my life. 
and, and like you work on a radio station where you play that song. I know. It wouldn't it be dreadful <laughs> if it had terrible connotations and I had to leave the room every time that came on? <laughs> well, now, I, I watched Simon Townsend's World War, which is a kids' TV show that was on every afternoon right around when you came home from school. It was fascinating. It was like a news documentary mm. show for uh, the younger, younger folk. And it wasn't until years later when I was doing a voiceover at uh, a studio from an audio guy that used to work there. Mark that I, Tanner probably. That I discovered the, uh, the behind-the-scenes stories of what was going on there. And the, Mark, or the audio guy, I don't know if it was him particularly, had framed memos mm. that Simon had sent around the office mm. um, w- describing how he was none too pleased with audio mixes and, yeah. and, and, and things like that. You know, a lot of people who are, um, I know uh, there's a couple of, Oscar-winning cinematographers, a couple of writers who are huge in the uh, media industry, um, presenters, a lot of people who started on that show who still say no job has ever been as hard. <laughs> and, um, and I think it was a great training ground to give you an incredible work ethic. So we all, all, all of us were untrained when we got those jobs. Some of the guys like the cinematographers, because it was made on film, went there from film school. Um, but for most of us, as straight out of uni or whatever, that was our first job. And so it was baptism by fire. Uh, I know Therese Hegarty, who um, when I was at Beyond 2000, was her job, and she still works at Channel 7, great, great media brain. It was her job at Beyond 2000 to have five, film, five crews all around the world to cover logistically, financially, uh, post-production-wise, to know where everyone was and what everyone was doing. She said no job was ever as hard as it was when she was at Simon Townsend's Wonderworld and she had to make sure when Simon went to studio he had a particular HB pencil sharpened to a particular length and he had all these little things in a little box that went along with him. And I can't tell if it's because it was our first job that it was so traumatic. It took me years for me to hear the rain and not panic because as a researcher I had to come up with two stories every day and if it rained, I had to refi- and it was an outdoor story, I had to find a replacement story. Uh, there was a crew once on the Gold Coast and there was a typhoon and power blackout. I had to find them a replacement story. You never came back without a story. And so it took a long time for me to not wake up in the morning panicked that it's raining, I've got to go in and get another story. Wow. Mm. But as I said, an amazing training ground and as scary as it was a lot of the time then, all of us are very pleased we did it. And five, five days a week. Yeah. And getting paid and just working, 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 yeah, yeah, working. Yeah. There's no, I mean, you went to university, but, you know, the stuff you learn on a job like that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and, and the people I met, some of, my ma- some of my major friends still from those days. Yeah, and, and people I'm sure that you've worked with time and time again over yeah, the years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, when I, and a lot of big staff turnover too. When I first started, I thought, isn't this great? We have a party every Friday. And they said, no, this is a farewell party. <laughs> <laughs> Put a cask wine and some cheesels because someone was going. <laughs> but a hugely social office too. Yeah. Um, and same, I felt that again with Beyond 2000, a big family style of, show, of program. Beyond yeah. 2000 was a science and technology show and by then I was a reporter and that show was shown all around the world. I think it was one of the first Australian programs to go international. Uh-huh. 60 countries took this program. Um, and... But when everyone was back in Sydney, it was just a giant party office. Considering the subject was science and technology, it was the funniest office I've ever worked in. Right. So I loved that show. Mm. I watched every week. And, I, you know, we've talked about this before. Mm. I remember crushing on you quite a lot in those days. It's a lab coat that can do it. It was the lab coat. It was the lab coat. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I remember watching this show because it was just kind of always produced with this idea that there's so much hope. It was always positive. And, and that humanity was is going to be okay. Yeah, that was part of its um, MO was the stories were always optimistic. If something didn't work, we didn't say so. Mm. We made the most of everything we had. So there was, a, there was an optimism to that show. Mm. Did it give you, uh, you know, uh, a similar hope about, you know, the role of science and technology in, in the society now? Uh, not really. In a way, I thought it was funny that we'd go to Bell Labs or the Jet Propulsion Laboratory oh. and they'd have like... I just a had a total nergasm when you just... You went to Bell Laboratory. But what I remember... See, I'm such a non-sciencey person yeah. that what I remember about that day is that we're dealing with people who were creating the internet or were, were, mm. were actually working on sending ships to Mars, mm. spaceships to Mars, and yet they had like an old cafe bar that, with powdered milk. <sighs> so it, it, they're the things that I found quirky. It's like the uh, Gary Larson cartoons of, you know, taking out the Polaris missile and saying, can I take the box home for the kids? There was a <laughs> level of dag to the highest level of science, and that's the bit that appealed to me. <laughs> the cafe bar with the thunk thunk. Yeah, yeah with the thunk thunk <laughs> and a one sugar thunk. <laughs> and every scientist I ever interviewed had this disgusting coffee breath. And I think it was because it was that powdered coffee and slight anxiety because they had a crew coming in yeah. and they had to be interviewed. So it was early rancid breath plus powdered coffee. <laughs> What's uh, when when you when you made that story? Was there a particular when you made that show? Mm. Was there a particular story that sticks out? Like, because when you're trampling around the world, things often don't go well. Uh, we did one story, I remember, it was a hearing aid for a dog. <laughs> we got a call the day before saying the story was cancelled. The dog didn't have its hearing aid in, it was hit by a car. <coughs> so that was there. There's a lot of things that go terribly wrong. Um, but by and large, we most of the stories happened whether, you know, we had to not fake them, but as I said, you had to be optimistic. Even if they say, I've got a giant wing and it's going to fly and you turn up and it's, and it's a miniature wing and it's in a box and you can't touch it. You know, how are we going to make a six-minute story out of this? But I always liked the third world low-key stories. There was one in particular in Chile, this town where it hadn't rained for 50 years and every night a fog would roll in that would tantalisingly look like rain but it never would. And the rich people in town, you had to ship in your, or had to truck in your water and if you had more money you had two barrels of water and if you didn't have so much money you had a smaller barrel. That's how wealth was deemed. Mm. And what the World Health Organization did was they put up some squash squash nets, like volleyball nets, at the top of the mountain. The dew and the fog would catch in there, and then it would funnel down into the river, into the town, and it just changed people's lives. And I loved that story that one natural thinker changed the the fortunes of this town. Yeah. So the, I like those small, low key kind of stories. But you know, this is a time before you you were married. This is a time before you had kids, so you could just. Scoot around the world. It's a brutal schedule when you do that kind of oh, stuff, well, though, isn't it? And that's where I thank Simon Townsend for giving me that work ethic because we would go away and do 20 stories in one one shoot and we'd go to maybe four countries and do 22 stories every day. Every two days you had to produce a story. So you'd be one and a half day travel, one and a half day travel, you get one day off a week, and, and it was just hard yakka. It was really hard. 
No time at all. It's people, oh, you go to Chile, you go to oh. Ukraine, you go to blah, blah, blah. Oh, I, mem- I've, I remember going to the Netherlands about four times, but I never got to Amsterdam. I was doing stories tantalizing me down the road on recycling cow poo mm-hmm. or the world's biggest centrifuge, all just an hour out of Amsterdam. So you stayed on the ring road in a hotel yeah, down yeah. the road. So I almost saw a lot of great places. But you were just, you're so, when you're doing that stuff, you, it's bags down in the lobby at 7 a.m. after oh. the breakfast buffet. You're meeting the guy for an interview at 8. Yeah. You're shooting B-roll all morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, and you're trying yeah. to do these long pieces to camera about stuff you don't quite understand. <laughs> but I became very good at memorising a long piece to camera. I could, I've still got the gift for it, I must say. If the world ends and that's the one thing we need, I'm going to survive. I could memorise a long, wordy piece to camera. And then an hour later, it's gone. You but and they, me both, yeah. yeah, yeah. You are good at that too. Yeah, that's yeah. my one skill. That and being good at puns. Actually, that's two skills. That's two skills. That's pretty. Yeah, mm. that's pretty good. If I can combine them into a circus kind of act, <laughs> I think we'll be rich. <laughs> we'll be rich. <laughs> so you obviously you're, you know, you're you're, you're working on, on on the telly, and you're hot. You're in the twenties. Well, thanks. Oh, then, yeah, sure. You're sure you're hot now. Come of course, on. obviously. Hot. You know, Get but what's you. funny is that when I looked, and I was mentioning earlier, I found the, all these old photographs. I wouldn't have got on television now being me then, if that makes sense. I used to dress in big lumpy cardigans. I look like Lena Durham from Girls. Lena Dunham, yeah. Dunham. Yeah. <laughs> I look like her and I had short hair. Funny about that, still do. But I had my grooming skills in terms of television mm-hmm. was zilch. I would wear big baggy pants and a giant cardigan, and uh, so I and I had big earrings the size. I actually had seed pod earrings and ping pong ball earrings and shaved like flock of seagulls hair. Uh, I, and and these days to do any sort of television, you pretty much have to um, be an Olympian or be a model. You have to be a pre celebrity. Yeah. So I, I was very grateful that I got a leg up and part of that was thanks to Ray Martin. I was working at the Midday Show, which was a, a – Ray Martin is a 60 Minutes reporter, very well-respected yeah, journalist in Australia. Yeah, he had a massive daytime TV show here. And then that's right. Then he did the Midday Show, which was daytime TV, but it had a bit of light stuff, but we also covered heavier topics. Mm-hmm. And he was – One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. the one who said to me, I think you should be in front of the camera. So I did a couple of stories, very important stories. One was a woman who dressed up her cat as Liberace and Boy George. And I'm surprised she didn't remember Real anchorman stuff. Uh, 
was yeah, actually. Veronica Coiningstone <laughs> doing the cat fashion parade. That's exactly what it was. Um, and I look back at those stories now. I've still got them on tape at home. And I look at it and think, well, how did that happen? It, a, a new, a modern executive would not allow that. But Ray, you're working there as a researcher. Working there as a segment producer. A segment producer. Thanks, segment, producer. segment producer. Right. Uh, yes. So, uh, and that was another great period. Ray was fantastic to work for. We all loved Ray, um, and it was really good television and good training. Once again, a daily show. Mm. So you had to get in, find your stories, research your stories, put your footage with the stories, all of this stuff. And beyond 2000, for example, all done without the internet. Mm. When I first started, there was a telex machine. We didn't even have a fax machine. You'd turn up in the morning and this paper would snake across the floor. So it's a science and technology show but was made in such a low-tech fashion. But that was cutting edge then. But today, to be able to type something in a computer and there's your research, we had to write to a Mexican facility, wait for them to send the information back. Or you'd wait up all night at three in the morning to make a phone call to Mexico to talk to the scientist. It, the, the world of research is completely different. So we did it the hard way. And so I just don't like, you know, when I think about my, my career, I'm only able to do what I do because I had a similar five days, six days a week, every day grinding it out, just doing it every day, every day, every day, every day. It's like day. a muscle, isn't it? You've got to do it. Yeah. And, and, that, and, and you can it in your early 20s. Mm. Like if I had to go do that now, forget about it. Mm. I'm 40. Like I'll, I'll go to bed, thank you very much. Mm. It's not that important. You know, yeah. But back then I just – there was – so I, I do want to know, but what was driving you? Was it just I, I have to be in media, I have to be in no, camera? No, and I, and I always was fearful of these new changes in the same way fear is a big word I seem to be using today, that, you know, scared of the girls at the beach and scared of... It's a great motivator. The, well, it is. And often opportunities came to me and I think, oh, I wish that hadn't happened because now I've got to say yes. That's what I thought when I got the Beyond 2000 job. That's what I thought when I was offered the position at Charles Sturt Uni. Oh, now they've offered it to me, I have to say Yes. And so I would rather those things hadn't happened. I look back now and, of course, all those junctions were the best things that ever did happen. But fear is a big motivator, you're right. And so if you find of something, at all those points in my life, they've been the best decisions to make. But I always think, oh, I wish they hadn't asked me because this is terrifying. So I never had the drive to be the best or to even be good at it. It was just, oh, they've asked me to do this, I'd better do it. It was being a good girl. I think that's what it was. <laughs> but once you got in there... You didn't want to do a bad job. That's right. So it wasn't me wanting to get ahead or even to shine. It was to not let people down and to do a good job. And that you, actually, it's interesting you've said this. this is a bit like therapy, that that is still my motivating factor, I think. And I'm trying to be less like that. I'll, I'll say yes to a thousand charity things and I'll say yes to if people ask me to do things. And at some point, I think everyone's being serviced but me. Hmm. I had a bit of a meltdown a few weeks ago. I had a lot on at work and I had a cold, so I couldn't walk the dog. I couldn't do any exercise. I didn't get proper sleep. And I thought, and I, I thought I'm not doing the things that I need to p please everyone else because I'll put everyone else first. And at some point I needed to say, okay, everyone go away. I'm going to lie in bed for a day. But you can't do it. And on the job I've got now, that's impossible to do too. As you know, breakfast radio, daily radio, people tune on the, tune on the radio, they expect to hear you. It's a big deal to not be there. And in a way that saved me. My children are both IVF and through all the years, particularly the first, my first child, Liam, years of IVF, I didn't want anyone to know, but getting up in the morning and having to go somewhere I think saved me. Having to think of something else for three hours saved me. Um, so at the time 
when people knew I was trying, my friends knew I was having a baby, well, shouldn't you be doing less? Shouldn't you have a quieter life? That I think I would have been, I couldn't have survived it. I see mates going through it, you know, because I'm 40, so mm. I see mates going through it. It's, uh, you only, unless you've seen your friends go through it, you only see, oh, isn't this baby great? Mm-hmm. You don't see the six years before that. Yeah. Or you don't see because we don't talk about it. When I went through, one in four would get a baby. You don't see because mm. no one tells you the story of the three in four who don't. Yeah. We all know someone who knows someone who's had a baby, so you think the technology means IVF equals baby. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't because you don't want to be the person, the three out of the four, that tells the story of you not being successful. And it's only this year that I've said publicly that my babies were IVF. I did, who do you think you are for the the SPS? How old do I say? For the SPS. Yeah. Um, It's a genealogy program. Yes, it tracks people's family family history. I found it quite fascinating. Yeah, but the thing that one of the reasons I really wanted to do it, one is my dad's, uh, my dad turned 80, but also the kids are of a certain age. And for a long time I thought I wouldn't have children. I wanted to, but I thought it wasn't going to happen for me. And so the fact that, I have some genes to pass on um, was a big deal. Mm. And for me to be able to say to Dad and my children, who are both at this stage still cognizant, Dad and the kids, hey, isn't this an amazing thing I can do? Yeah. What are the um, – as I saw, like I said, I've said, you know, mates have gone through it. What, and I know that for the, for the man – there's the joke of like all you've got to do is, you know, jerk off into a jar. Mm. For, for the woman, it's just it is traumatic to say the least yeah. what a woman has to go through. What are the what do the drugs do to you? What's How do you get through your day? You almost can't be the judge of how the drugs are with you because I thought I was pretty steady but just recently Harley, my husband, said, oh, do you think you were? And I thought well, maybe I wasn't. I thought I was. Um, but that's why I think in a way too that working saved me because you couldn't every day analyse how am I feeling today, am Mm. I off my face today, Mm -hmm. instead of get up and deal with whatever was presenting itself. There's one particular day where, uh, because they'd experiment with me to try and get the drugs right and uh, I I was super ovulating. I like to do everything really well. But it meant that there were too many embryos, too many eggs, I mean. Everything's coming out. Everything's too big because the whole purpose of IVF is they try and get you to create a whole lot of eggs take them out of the body, fertilise them and see yeah. how many embryos you can get. And so, But they caused me to super ovulate, which is a bad condition whereby that's not healthy for you. So I had this giant bumper crop and my shirt was just buzz, busting out at the seams and so uncomfortable. But this is another example of not wanting to let people down. I'd agreed to do a story that day <laughs> after I'd come home from the radio and the reason I agreed to it was because I thought it was funny penthouse wanted to do an interview with me and I thought wouldn't it be hilarious if I had a beaver shot in penthouse I wanted to hold a stuffed beaver and (laughs) for my interview with penthouse and so they came over because I was too polite to cancel even though I felt like I wanted to die and my shirt was busting at the seams not in a bosomy way in a gut way and I just felt so uncomfortable. And as soon as they left, I went up to the hospital. But I thought, could there have been a less sexy penthouse moment for anybody? <laughs> <laughs> and my beaver was also mounted on wood, as it were. I couldn't get a self-freestanding a beaver. <laughs> so it was one plank of wood. It was the oddest day ever. That's the uh, that fantastic naked gun line. Nice beaver. Yeah, that's- <laughs> Thanks. I just had it stuffed. <laughs> Goodness um, me. Goodness me. Well, look, I'm thrilled that you've got 
you got kids out of it. Yeah, and, you know, for years I'd still get a shock when I'd look at the back of the car and see these two baby seats. Mm. And now I've got a son who's 13 who's six foot tall, the deep voice, giant feet, and uh, an 11-year-old who's just hilarious. And I just – and I'm so grateful Mm. because for a long time – and I used to say to the doctor, you'll have to tell me when to stop because I don't want to be defined by this and I don't want to be defined by the lack of this. I need a grown-up to tell me when to stop. Mm -hmm. And just as we were getting to the pointy end of thinking, oh, it's not going to happen, there it was. Wow. Mm. And was it – was it a career thing? Like um, People wouldn't say anything to Harley, but they, they would assume that I was making a career decision. Yeah. And that was really hurtful. I remember because we were trying for a long time uh-huh. and I remember uh, um, getting an email from a guy when I said finally, I was, I could, the, the joy in being able to say the words, I'm having a baby. I'd fantasised on air about saying it when I wasn't pregnant, thinking what would happen if I just said the words? Mm. How would I deal with the fallout of that? but I just so wanted to be able to say the words. So when I could finally say the words, I was working with Andrew Denton on, his, on our breakfast show and I got an email, a very nice email from a man saying, I always wondered why you were too scared to, to do this before. And I thought, you've got no idea. You've got no idea that how hard I've been trying to be in this position. Yeah. You know, that's why I never make any judgments about anybody because you don't know what their choices are or what their situation is. You just don't know. You mentioned, like, let's just rewind a second. The you went to university with Andrew Denson, and then you uh, came to be on this very high-profile television show, which got you, I'm sure, some notoriety. People mm. when you're doing shopping in the in the supermarket, going, "Oh, hey, you're the girl from the the science show. Where's your lab coat?" Yes. Um, how did the breakfast radio gig come about? That was uh, so. I'd done the Tonight Show with Andrew. He had a um, a Tonight Show called Denton, funnily mm. enough, uh, on Channel 7 and that ra- w- wrapped up after two years and then he had been approached by Triple M, a Sydney radio station. Landmark rock and roll. And, but had, it was like an old ruin. When it he was. was approached, it was a disaster. Mm. And I remember saying to him, oh, does it have to be that station? I was sitting at his house having a cup of tea and he asked me to do the job with him. And the thought of getting up that early just, uh, just seemed like impossible. I thought, how, how do you make your, that, your life? How does that happen? 3.45. Yeah, yeah, how does that happen? Um, and once again, fear kicked in and, and for a lot of it, even the early days was very fearful. Um, and then we did the show together for five years and now I'm still doing radio. Mm-hmm. How was it getting out of bed that early at um, first? Really hard, really hard. And as we say, like using your brain to do these things is a muscle. I think there's also a part of you that gets used to up early. Mm. On weekends now I I can't sleep in to save myself but come to two in the afternoon I can't stay awake and have an afternoon sleep. But uh, I don't struggle with the hours anymore. That was some good advice someone gave me early on. They said there will be days when you're tired, just get over it. (laughs) And rather than fighting fighting how you feel, alarm goes off, get up, and if there's days where you feel dreadful, just deal with it. There's few work relationships that are as close as the breakfast radio mm. duo mm. relationship. What did you learn about that kind of professional boundary? I mean, you know, it's 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 almost like the other husband. It's almost like the other yeah. wife. It yeah, really it is. is. And it has to be. It's interesting just in recent days, um, Kyle and Jackie O, who we spoke about before, who were on the other radio station in our building, had a fight and stormed off and they had to have a cup of coffee and make it work. And Jonesy, who I know you've also done one of these with, and I were talking about that we often feud 
we love each other and hate each other in equal measure. But we, ha- you know in that space you have to fix it. We often say that we are better at talking things out with each other than we are with our partners because mm. in, your, in your life at home you can just drift and domestic life takes over and you don't fix the stuff in that small space to be able to look at each other and talk to each other and do a professional job, you have to get past whatever it is mm. and so you have to nut it out. So we've learned to do that very well. It is a small space too. Like you can smell what their breath is. It's, you talk of coffee breath earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you smell the BO. It's a small room. It's a very small Airtight. room. Airtight. <laughs> and also those are the loneliest hours in the world and and that's when you're most vulnerable. I think if you do a drive show or a, or a night show, it's a, there's a different um, cadence to it and a different psychology. If things aren't going well in your life, like all those years of IVF or whatever's happening, your, your skin's peeled off at those hours and that alarm goes off to the loneliest moments in the world until you've put your head under the shower and you drive in and you're going to an office. I don't understand how people can do this stuff remotely through a landline because mm. the only advantage of being up is you're in an office with other people and there's an energy to it. I couldn't do that on my own at home. I'd hate it. Yeah. So you need someone who understands you because they're such hard, uh, emotionally they can be hard hours. Mm. When you're you a bit raw. When you talked about, you know, working the, um, you know, being in the middle of, of Wonderworld and in the middle of the midday show and um, beyond 2000, when you're working, doing that five days a week with someone like Andrew, I mean, you are a very smart woman. There's, there's, you didn't have your career by accident. You're employed because you're the best at what you do. What, did, what do you get good at when you do five years with someone like Andrew when you're sparring every day? Mm. What, what becomes better about what you do? It's like playing, and Jonesy's probably used this analogy too, but he probably nicked it from me. <laughs> he said it's like playing tennis with someone who's really good. Mm-hmm. You can, if you're playing with someone who's not so great, both of you have a sloppy game. When you play with someone who's good, you both get better. And I loved watching Andrew's brain at work and having known him and worked with him. But in that space, and radio really suited him because you can't be a perfectionist, as you know. We say it's up the stick and away it's gone. Claire Blake used to teach me that. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a, yeah. But it's true, isn't it? And, and Andrew has said that radio takes more creative ideas in a week than television does in a year. Oh, yeah. It sucks it up. So it's, it, I learned an enormous amount from him about a beginning and a middle and an end to a segment, about how a segment's put together, about how it's crafted on air, about doing things that make you laugh and letting the rest of it come later. He was never, we never said, and I've often seen radio shows do that where they draw on a board and say, here's who your audience, here's a classic We've whittled your audience down to one person. Her name is Jan. She's 42 and she buys groceries and she's got two kids. Betty Blacktown is who they call it. Yes. One of the networks here calls her Betty Blacktown. Dreadful. Dreadful. But I've been very lucky in that I've worked on shows that we've never pandered to a particular person. We're aware of who who our listeners are. But we've just done stuff that, have en- that has entertained us. And I, I learnt that from Andrew too as to where he drew the line as to yes and no. I'm not, I, I'll do this but I'm not, gonna, I'm not towing the line there. He's mm. very, very forceful and I really admire that. Right. I was in radio from 1994, so around the sim- similar time when you'd started doing that breakfast radio show and my girlfriend at the time, Simone, um, and I were, were trying to come up as announcers and I just saw – how much of a difference it was that I was a man in radio versus her, you know, and I just saw how skewed it was towards men. Did you ever come across 
anything like that? Um, maybe. That was a very male network. And I don't think I could have dealt with it if it was that old school stuff, yeah. that old, that brash kind of, uh, you know, the, the, that stuff. that was about the Channel 9 boardroom being a similar experience. I couldn't have dealt with that blokey kind of world, I don't think. Um, so that had slightly changed when I came along. So I think working with Andrew was a radio learning ground for me. Is that word right words, learning ground? Yeah, um, it is now. Yeah, it is now. Uh, so I didn't feel that being a female disadvantaged me and at WS I certainly don't feel that. So I can see why for other people it might and also in television the women are usually the segment producers but the show's executive producers and the guys who are the decision makers are quite often the men. I can see the, the disparate nature of that. Um, but having said that, at some point women want families and you, you, you want to pull back from the, the, the full-time staff, hmm. maybe, I don't know. But I do think we've got a long way to go for equality there. Yeah. And considering, you know, more women I think these days watching television than men, why are all these decisions made by men? I don't know. I was flummoxed by that when I started in television in that exactly that, the people that run it are women, mm. people that make, make it happen, mm. all the production managers are women. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you mentioned earlier the, the, the colleague of yours that was keeping five, five, film, crews, yeah, five yeah. film crews and edit suites running 24 hours a day. Yeah. They're, they're all women. But, yeah, there is that point where at, at the top it's bloke. And at Beyond 2000, a lot of amazing producers, two of whom were Tim Warner and Brad Lyons, but a lot of other female producers, Tim Warner, CEO of Channel 7, Brad Lyons, I think is is this one step below him at Channel 7. They're great guys and very good at their jobs, but all the women that were doing just as well aren't in those positions. What needs to change? I don't know. I don't know. I've always worked for production companies as opposed to networks, so I don't know the inner workings of the networks. Um, Is it boys' school? You know, the, most of the look at the boards, most of them are still stacked with men right across the board. I think it will change. I think it will change. It's already starting to change, but it's a slow process. You see someone like you know, DMG and you know, Kath O'Connor's at there. Yeah. Isn't yeah. she a gun? I love she's her. Amazing. And she's raised a family. She's, uh, um, and, and I've never seen her cranky. I used to work with her at Triple M. Um, I've never seen her. Um, looking like it was all too much, but she had two little kids during that time. She'd come into work hugely pregnant, get on with it, just do the job, mm. go home, have a life. She's a fabulous woman too. She is. She is. She's, that's what yeah. I mean. She's a great woman and she's excellent at her job yeah. and she's a good people manager. She ticks all those boxes. So I hope every accolade, every job she wants comes her way because she deserves it. If someone asked, would you ever do that? If someone said, Amanda, we want you to come and run no, this? I just, it's not how I, it's not what I'm interested in. Yeah. Yeah. And as soon as someone started to talk about figures and things, I just hear dogs barking. <laughs> so there are certain things I can do and other things I just think, oh, I can't be bothered. You're right. <laughs> Terrible. Even sending an attachment on the computer, I get my son to do it. Isn't that embarrassing? Because <laughs> my husband refuses to. He says, you've got to learn to do this. And I say, I do enough. This is what you do. So, but isn't that terrible? <laughs> Dreadful. So there are things I do and the other stuff I just can't be asked. What changed about how you looked at your career once the kids did come along? I mean, considering how so much of your energy had gone into producing these humans. But, you know, it's, what's amazing is the person you think you'll become, particularly if you struggle to have a family, I imagined I would be 
a different person the other side of it. And good and bad, I'm not. I'm not Mother Teresa and I'm, and I'm still, uh, you know, I still like working. So actually not much changed. And I think part of that is that I was on a radio contract when both of them were born. So you only get four months off. So um, I couldn't sit at, even if I wanted to, couldn't sit at home for a year and think, what do I feel like doing now? Um, so I think that's why they've both learnt to sleep like they're in the army. I pretty much pumped them <laughs> into a bed <laughs> from the side of the room and they'd be sound asleep within seconds. Um, so they've always been fantastic. And the hours I've done have always suited having a family. I go to bed early, they go to bed early. Um, and I get up early in the morning and they'd be asleep and I'd be, I'm there all afternoon, every afternoon most of the time. Um, so it, the hours have never been at odds with, with having a family. When you do breakfast radio, you are, you know, and the kind of modern style of breakfast radio is that you share a lot about your life on mm. air and you, you, you have this way about your life on air. Did you ever, I mean, you said you didn't talk about the IVF stuff until very recently. Mm. Did you ever struggle with how much to talk about, how much yeah, not to talk about? it is really hard. And now the children are older, I kind of feel I have to ask them if they say something funny. <laughs> I have to say, do you mind if I mention it? Whereas in the old days when they were little, they didn't have a say. It's yeah. paying for your holiday. Be quiet. Um, so, and now they'll often say, oh, no, don't do that. So that makes it harder because then I have to evaluate, do I say it quietly early on when I know they're still asleep or do I abide by their wishes? <laughs> that's a, it is hard. And saying, you know, that's, that, that's tough that, that some of the juicier, hilarious stuff you know, it would embarrass them. So you just can't do that. You can't do that. But it's, it, the thing is, though, it's relatable because it's everybody's. Yes. So you can find that. another way of doing it. Yeah. Um, maybe. But you, you don't want to be the person that, that outs their kids either, even if you're slightly making it up because that's, that's not who I want to be anyway. If there's one thing that everyone says about yourself and Brenda Jones, currently the number one uh, radio show in Australia, I'm going to say Australia, yeah. um, is that you guys are nice. Are most people not nice? There's just something about what you guys are that it's just, it's just nice. I think part of that is the style of radio we do, and that's what I was alluding to earlier, that we don't have to manufacture a show for a certain demographic. We just do the stuff that we like. And so we don't have to do stunts. We don't have to do prank calls. We don't have to do the stuff that has an edge to it. I know that can be compelling radio, but I'm just not interested. This morning when I was in the green room waiting to go onto the Kyle and Jack, there was two punters in there who were going to get into a bathtub naked. They're friends. They know each other, but they've never seen each other naked before. So they're going to get into a bathtub naked on air. And I looked at them and I'm like, part of me is, you know, just part of me is still, I always wonder, it's like, what if I stayed in Australia? You know, what would I be mm. doing breakfast radio? Mm. Part of me is like, yeah, I don't think I'd want to do that kind of no. show. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder if they do. That's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not interested in, in that style of radio and I'm very glad I've never had to. But I think that, that niceness is because we don't do that kind of stuff. I yeah. think maybe that's it. You know what I found interesting this year, though? This would be an interesting study for media studies. I'm a, a patron of a, Sydney, uh, of a charity for the Sydney Children's Hospital and it's made me a target this year. 
at the beginning of the year, we had a promotion that was sponsored by a mining company. And I said, look, I won't do live reads. I won't read ads for the mining company, but it's not my place if they want to sponsor a competition. If a car company wants to sponsor a competition, if a clothing company wants to sponsor a competition, that's all done out of my hands at a radio station, as you know. Um, when this competition was on, there was a tagline, New South Wales Mining, Doctors Against Mining targeted me, <laughs> saying, how dare I be a patron for a children's charity when I'm promoting disease and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then later in the year, Jonesy made a joke um, about um, children with, I don't even remember the term, imperfect anuses, I think it might be. And the joke was, this is a number of children are born with this. That wasn't the joke, obviously. He said, my uncle always threatened to tear me a new one. It was a joke. It wasn't about those children. It was a joke about him and his uncle. The uh, organisation that supports these children, I think there are a couple of them in Australia, but this is what the internet gives you, internationally, hmm. were up in arms about what we had done. We were called baby bullies. Huh. And once again, they said, how dare I be a patron of a children's charity? And normally these things can wash over you. Yeah. But I give up a lot of my time when I'd like to be at home on a Saturday night eating sausages with my children and I go out to do work for the Sydney Children's Hospital and I thought all that good work can be undone by just a couple of people who demand an apology f from you by, is it phasing? What's the expression when they take over your Facebook page or whatever? Yeah, yeah. yeah when they, and I thought yeah. it would be a very interesting modern media study and they, 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 you know, contacted the charity, they did all of this kind of stuff and I just tell it, like, feel like it's like the customer is always right. You can't tell them what you think. <laughs> But I really felt like it. I felt yeah. like saying, all this hard work I do and you can target me because of this. Yeah. And it made me want to give up. And then I thought, I thought, until I want to rack off. I just, I just wanted everyone to go away and I was live my life and everyone can shut up. But, you know, we had our charity ball last week. We raised $70,000 to buy this amazing new piece of equipment for the Sydney Children's Hospital. And that's why you do it. Hmm. And that's why you can't stop and you can't give up because there's always someone that needs your help. And I took a deep breath and I got over myself. And But you can't let those people hurt you. But what a, I, it's the last thing I would have expected that me being the patron of a charity would have attracted that kind of vitriol. Yeah. I think that's, you know, it's a, it's a decidedly modern thing since I've mm. started in, in radio, since you've been in, in television. You know, the way for people to organise and be collectively outraged and... I mean, it's 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 wild that this computer that I have right here, sitting in front of me with my notes on it, is the same computer that the people that are designing the cure for cancer are using. It's exactly the same machine, right? The same. I have a Twitter account. So does Justin Bieber, who has a hundred million followers. You know, we both have access to the same uh, communication tool, and and so does everybody. It doesn't make it a exactly great thing mm. that we all have this ability now. But I think. But, the, but you're right, that trigger to anger is different. Yeah. The, the ability the, to use the tool is one thing, but we're so quick to be outraged. So quick. And, and the idea that the, there's something intoxicating about righteous outrage mm. and it's dangerous in the wrong context. Mm. And once, you know, I think when I, when I think about it, and, you know, when I, when I have been occasionally the, the target of some of this stuff, I just try to think about it. It feels so intoxicating to feel right. And I'm allowed to be upset. Therefore, I'm going to get super upset. Mm. And I'm going to say horrible things mm. that 
I don't even consider and I would never say to this person in the flesh, I would never say to their face and I would never, you know, ex- it's, I don't know, there's a, there's a lot to be said about anonymity on the internet and there's a lot to be said about being who you are on the internet. Mm. But, and as a, but in my job I'm being myself on the radio. I'm not an actress. I'm not wearing a mask. So I'm an easy target. Mm. And most of the things, people, 99.9% of people, are nice mm. and you have to distance yourself from the bit that isn't. Yeah. We, I was at a, a restaurant, a Chinese restaurant with my family the other day and my son was laughing as we got into the car and he said we'd walk, he, I'd walk past these two women and one said the other one, there's that Amanda Keller and the other one said, I don't like her. And I laugh at that because that's funny. She was having an opinion with her friend and my son walked past and heard it and thought it was hilarious and so did I. <laughs> but that's, that's natural. That's what, that's what can happen. But to be targeted when you're out doing good works, it just really pissed me off. Well, fair enough too. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't I was take at, much to piss me off but that was it. Yeah, I was at Splendour in the Grass a few weeks ago. Uh, I had a great time, got a fantastic virus, got really, really sick, still sick from it. Um, but I was standing with a friend and she said to me, isn't it interesting how people stand right in front of you and point and take photos thinking that you can't see them? Mm. Well, yeah, that is kind of interesting, isn't it? It's weird because if it's human interaction, if someone says hello, as a human being you say hello. But if someone talking about you, there's nothing you can do. You can't even diffuse it. You can't, you mm. know, it's weird, isn't it? But as if you're not there. Yeah. As if it's like when they're watching you on telly yeah, yeah, yeah. and they can say stuff about you and you don't hear it. Yeah. Or when you're on radio, they can say stuff about you and you don't hear it. Like, mm. well, guess what? When you're standing in front of me and I you say something about you, I can hear you. <laughs> when the talking comes out of your yeah. mouth, it goes into my ear holes <laughs> and it hurts my feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The feelings inside me. I'm a real person. <laughs> yeah, funny, isn't it? So I've, I've had you here. I'm, I'm aware that it's now late night for you. It's uh, like 5 p.m. And bedtime. My children have opposable thumbs. They can open a can of something for themselves <laughs> for dinner. <laughs> well, then, all right, then. So, as we get sail but towards. I do have to empty my bladder suit. I am 52 and I've had two children. And a cup of tea. And a cup of tea. I, I, I know you're pushing the envelope. <laughs> um, well, it is lovely to have you back on the telly. You are on a lifestyle telly on, on the living room, mm-hmm. which is on the, on the 10 network. You've been in the industry to see it shift so much to a point now where it's it's just started a fleetingly tear free of analog broadcasting it's starting to find its way online when i look at bachelor and we get you know this many numbers on the overnight ratings and then we get double that on the laptop when people watching how do you see the industry shifting see i should know this stuff with my background in technology and all but i'm such a luddite I think we might get to the point, I, don't, I think broadcast television is coming to an end. I think we might get to the point where your individual tastes just dictate your own channels almost. We've got that as it is. Mm. And that's why I think it's a shame when shows get axed on the main broadcasters because they're not pulling the big numbers. Because as long as you make a show for a particular audience, it should be enough. The days of bums on seats I don't think exist anymore. Where that's an expression that's been used, meaning you need to get as many people as you can watching your show. I think as long as you get your you're catering to a particular audience and your expectations aren't all bums on seats, which isn't possible anymore unless it's a footy grand final, um, I think it's okay. So it's a shame when shows come and go and we're all in the media at the whims of timing and taste and things like that and executives. But I think that's how television will go, that you can streamline your own field of interest. Mm. And what would you say to the young folks who are listening at 
the Charleston University at <laughs> Adam Bathurst right now. <laughs> Wash your hair. Um, the, the career I wanted, I mean, I'm extremely happy with my, with, with my career and that I'm as busy as I've ever been at my age. I love that. Um, but if someone had said you're going to work on a science show, I would have gone, I don't know anything about that. You know, I, even a lifestyle show, I don't know anything about that. But these are the best things. So if a door opens sideways to where you think you're going, that could be the best step of your life. I always used to wish I had a master plan. I never did. Like other people would say, I want to work at 60 Minutes or I want to be a writer. I never knew. And I think that's what's given me the length and breadth of what I've done. So what was it that, that set you forward then? I think it was doors opening and, and fear pushing me through. So it's not a particular drive. It was, well, they've asked me. It'd only be polite to say yes and do it well. Right. And considering we talked about it a bit, there's probably people who are listening to this that are going through IVF or have been mm. through IVF who are trying to get pregnant. What would you say to them? Oh, it's so hard. You know, it's funny. If I watch a documentary about it now, I'll cry, but I never did at the time. Um, it's, I think you've got a better chance now than you used to, but having said that, there's still going to be people that don't come home with a baby. And I don't know whether it's, oh, I don't want to say set yourself a time limit because we were at the very end of that when, we, when it happened for us. But you don't want to get to 50 and you've spent 20 years being defined by something that didn't happen for you. That would be awful. So in the midst of it, make sure you have holidays. Make sure you do a job you love. Don't put your life on hold because I've seen friends do that too. You put your life on hold and then at the end of that you look around and you think, well, I don't have the baby and I don't have a job and I don't have whatever. So I would say for your own sanity, keep everything ticking along and, and, and don't put all your happiness eggs in that basket, which is easy for me to say. It's very hard. And I look at this recent debate with surrogacy. If, you're, if you want a baby and you can't have a baby, unless you're in that position, you cannot understand what that feels like. So, you know, good luck to you. You've been amazing. Thank you. And I do have to go and do a wee. <laughs> and then I'm going to take your photo. Okay. It's right through there. That's Amanda Keller. You can listen to her every week, I think every day even. Yeah. On the Jamcast, J-A-M-C-A-S-T, which you can just search for in iTunes. Uh, that's the number one breakfast radio show in Sydney at the moment. So if you're not from Sydney, you get to hear what being number one takes. Um, it's there. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for giving me an hour of your time every week. I am I'm just really grateful. And I want you to know this from the bottom of my heart that without you listening to this, I wouldn't do this. And this show brings me such joy, such satisfaction. I can't begin to put a value on it, but I wouldn't be doing it if it weren't for you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you need me, send Osher email at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast. Get on the mailing list. If you want to write to me, just hit reply on the mailing list and that's where I am. Have a great week. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.